on this week's episode of America This Week from the Harris Poll. It's not just inflation, it's pinkflation. Women are being charged more for basic necessities. Okay, Boomer. And apparently you, Libby, <laughs> talk about Gen Z's take on emojis. And we also talk about how inflation hits the heart of the home. All that coming up next on America This Week. Hey, Libby, how are you? I'm great, John. How are you? I'm just getting ready for Halloween. What are, the, what are the kids going as? Sienna's going as a flamingo where she actually steps into a flamingo stuffed costume and Matisse <laughs> keeps it real as a tiger for the fourth year counting. So You know, once you find a good costume, you got to stick with it. Yeah, it's a good idea. Livy, why don't you tell our new listeners about our show? Yeah, so our podcast aims to bring American society in the boardroom, highlighting the emerging needs and desires bubbling to the top so that business leaders or any curious person really could be better prepared to navigate towards the future. We're basically data geeks on society, but we'll try to keep it simple. So Libby, as always, let's start with the weekly heat. And we've got three numbers that we want to talk about that come from our brand new released Harvard Harris poll. We released this this week. And the first number, Libby, is 65. Two thirds or nearly two thirds, 65% of US voters think the economy today is weak. And that is up eight points from a year ago. The second number is 57, also from the Harvard Harris poll. It says that 57% of Americans say that their financial situation is getting worse. And remarkably, that is up 20 points from last October. And I think in both of those numbers, Libby, that's pretty stark because last fall, obviously we were still dealing with the remnants of, of Delta and Omicron. And and so, you know, to see where Americans are, that's definitely a tough one. And then lastly, there's the number one. Why not have the number one? Compared to mid-March of 2022, there has only been a one percentage point decrease in concern about the economy and inflation. So in other words, the anxiety is sort of holding firm. What do you sort of see in these, Libby? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about these numbers lately, even just on a personal level. And I think mm -hmm. what it tells you, because we've been seeing these numbers week over week for the last couple of months, is that Americans are under this severe pressure, right? And it's hard. It starts to feel like the new normal when you start to see these numbers over and over again around inflation and financial situations getting worse and just overall concern. And the thing is, our human tendency is that we project today. So if this starts to feel like the new normal, we project it into tomorrow. And we start to go, if I can't afford groceries and gas and housing today, how am I going to, you know, how, what is tomorrow going to look like for me and my family and my friends? And how is it all going to work out? And I think actually it's a really big opportunity and also moral responsibility for business leaders who are afforded the 500 foot perspective to say, hey, we're in a cycle. This is part of the economic cycle. At least it helps me sleep at night. It's like, okay, we come in and out of these. This is a natural part of the economic cycle. And from a business leader, it's a real big opportunity and you'll see it throughout this kind of conversation you and I are going to have today. It's a really big opportunity to be a buoy, to be a financial pressure reliever in these times as consumers navigate this down cycle that we're in. And that is really where, you know, long-term loyalty and brand love is built. So as people have tight chest and wallets today, when are they going to loosen them and who are they going to loosen them for tomorrow? That's being built right now in this moment. Gosh, I think that is so important. And you got me thinking about when I went and did research for my second book, which was Spend Shift. I did this with um, Michael D'Antonio, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. And we went into inner city Detroit in 2010 
I mean, in the city had just been completely hollowed out, right? But we went in to talk to entrepreneurs and they were already starting to see the green shoots of a new city. And I remember I walked past this sort of burned out building and there was an art installation inside of it that just had this banner that said, everything is going to be okay. And I, I don't know, I just, I've always remembered that as obviously I have a little bit older age and a bit more perspective, but what you're saying about having this sense of an understanding of a cycle, because when you're in it, particularly younger people who've never lived this type of a, of a challenge. I think that's really, really salient advice. Hey, so let's jump into our stories. The first one we're going to talk about is the story around pinkflation. So this comes from a new CVS Harris Poll National Health Project. This was featured in Boston Business Journal and also in USA Today this week. And if you don't know what pinkflation is, it's sort of a term that Libby and I coined this week, which is the combination of already high inflation coupled with this so-called pink tax, which is, in our opinion, really putting unfair burden on and stress on American women. So let's explain what this is. So the pink tax refers to a markup on goods and services that are marketed to women for which men pay less for similar products and services. So Libby, think razor blades, think shaving cream. You know, in fact, there was a study in the United States, one government study analyzed 800 gender specific products from nearly 100 brands. And they found on average that these personal care products targeted to women were actually 13% more expensive than similar men's products. And the study concluded that women are paying thousands of dollars more over the course of their lives to purchase similar products as men. Isn't that crazy? That it's makes crazy. That makes me so <laughs> upset as a woman. I'm like, well, I want my money back. But what's worse, John, is that these pink taxes are focused on essentials. Mm. So for example, let's talk about period products. For example, half of women who are buying period products today say there are le- they are less affordable than during the pandemic. So they've noticed a, a price jacking and increasing there. And we found with our CVS poll that nearly half of women, 45% with periods are regularly stressed about affording period products. And in two, 2019, before the pandemic, we worked with Thinks to mm. look at period poverty amongst teenagers. And we saw that one in five teens struggled to even afford period products or were not able to pro- purchase them at all, which had seriously ramifications around them even attending school and missing school because they wouldn't, weren't able to afford these products. I mean, Libby, this is just... I always try to be objective as a pollster, but there's something really nefarious going on here, right? You, you have companies, whether implicitly or not, capitalizing on a distressed purchase in an inflationary environment. I mean, what else did we learn here, Libby? Yeah, I mean, look, John, let's get real here, right? Period products are toilet paper for women, right? Mm. It's an essential need but it's an invisible issue. So also what we found with CVS is that more than half of American women say women's care products are unfairly priced. So there's an, there's an understanding that there's a price inequity there. But what's interesting is most American consumers at 58% are unaware that some states even have sales tax on period and feminine hygiene products. For example, Texas, Utah, Wisconsin, they also tax these products that are also just already more expensive than they should be. It's like treating them like cigarettes or alcohol. Right. You know what I I was thinking about as you were kind of laying out those stats that, you know, here just feels like a simple, important way if you're in business to work on your S and ESG and also be consumer centric right at the same time. And I mean, if you just step back and you think about it, according to Forbes, women account for 85 percent all consumer purchases in the United States, meaning they, they purchase or influence that. And clearly the consumer drives our 
U.S. economy. So you basically have women at, at the center of, of all economic activity creation, and yet you have these sort of prejudicial pricing schemes that sort of taking underneath their noses. And, you know, I didn't even know about this. I didn't know about a lot of this issue with the pink tax, so I'm really surprised. And I also know we found in our data that nearly 9 in 10 women believe corporations who sell period products should make them more affordable, more accessible, and more environmentally friendly. So it really feels like there should be some work done here, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the net takeaway is pay us less, charge us more, <laughs> pass the buck. And that's just not, you can't that do that. Again. You know, you cannot for women, as speaking as a woman, you can't pay us less, charge us more and pass the buck on from an inflationary point mm. of view. It is just not in a winning equation to build a base. And you have to think about a younger consumer who is saying no in a lot of ways and, and getting more inside of corporations and supply chains and pricing to to draw these inequities, to build them and bubble them up to the surface. So while people don't maybe aren't that aware of it today, it doesn't mean that they won't be tomorrow, especially with the rise of TikTok learning and, and surfacing mm -hmm. these kinds of things. But what I think is interesting to watch is industry leaders are taking a position and a point of responsibility here. And I think that's really kind of amazing. For example, CVS Health is cutting the price of their store brand period products by 25%. Again, bringing some financial pressure relief there. They also are committed to ensuring price equity and comparable products in their stores. So no more shaving creams or razors that are different prices, depending on if you're a man or a woman, those should be at equal costs and prices. And lastly, they're taking a stance on getting rid of menstrual tax and working with organizations to eliminate this frankly ridiculous tax. But in the meantime, they're also covering the costs in those states like Texas and Hawaii and Utah. And so what I think is important here is regardless of if you're in the period product business, it's that seeing something off with the system and starting mm. to work with how do you impact it today? How do you provide immediate relief today? What do you do about it tomorrow? You know, and a lot of that has to do with taking a stance, taking a long-term position against something or for something. And I think that's kind of the key takeaway that any business can implement, find those cracks in the system don't just acknowledge them, fill them in, relieve the pressure and advocate for a better tomorrow. It's great advice. I'd lastly add that if you're a marketer or a manufacturer, you should look really closely at your product line extensions, your entire merchandising mix and ask yourself if it's pale, stale mail, you know, because <laughs> that's completely inappropriate and, and really, really rough. Okay. So you got me worked up. I think I need something lighter. <laughs> uh, can we talk about the this week's palate cleanser? What do we have? Yeah. So, John, what do you think of when you think of a thumbs up emoji? Um, uh, yeah, it's all good. Yeah, so me too. And I get that a thumbs up could be a bit boring, but I thought it was kind of appropriate. Anyways, we read a New York Post article last week up with Gen Z saying that the thumbs up emojis were a sign of passive aggressive behavior and they didn't have any data to back it up. So we thought, is that a real thing or not? And it turns out we went into the market and got some data. It turns out it's true, John. So I'm kind of surprised. So get this, there is a generational divide, especially between boomers and Gen Zers. A majority of boomers, two thirds, see the thumbs up as a sign of, hey, that's okay. I understand nothing more. However, that same majority of Gen Z, two thirds, think that the thumbs up emoji can have a hidden meaning implying sarcasm or passive aggressiveness, Really, which makes it just feel like a modern day Seinfeld episode. You know, some, <laughs> there's just a, there's just a missing 
piece of the equation. And in fact, Gen Z are twice as likely to believe the thumbs up emoji are meant to be passive aggressive and demissive as a way to answer someone compared to millennials, three times more than Gen X and four times more than boomers. In fact, boomers believe that the thumbs up emoji isn't passive aggressive at all. So I have to say, I'm a little surprised because I thought it was boring, but I didn't think it was passive aggressive. And now I'll be checking my thumbs up approach to you, my colleagues and family members. But what about you, John? Don't you, do you ever send a thumbs up to Nina, your daughter? Not after this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, so you can count on us to keep you fresh. The other things we learned from our research is that Gen Zs have specific sentiment around certain emojis that they call cringy. And the emojis you don't want to use with Gen Zs anymore are the monkeys covering their eyes, lipstick kiss, and the straight on laughing, crying face. So you're welcome from us. You will always learn a little bit about how to keep up to date with culture and Gen Z. Thank you very much for that emoji sort of cultural makeover. I needed to know that stuff. That's absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Let's get into our second story, Libby. We're going to continue this sort of thread of the economy and inflation coming out of our Harvard-Harris poll data. But what we want to do here on this second story is really talk about how it actually affects our own personal security, including our homes. And, you know, like, like we talked about, Libby, the first story that we covered on pink tax and pinkflation shows that not all consumers are treated equally, right? And this is especially true also of those Americans who are renting and also looking at this incredible 40-year high inflation and the looming recession. So let's start with the problem. And the problem that we see out of this week's Harvard-Harris poll data is that American voters basically see no relief in sight. We found that 84% of voters think that the U.S. is either in a recession now or will be in one by next year. So that's a significant degree of overwhelming cynicism about sort of where the economy is. But what's worse about it is that most of them feel there's no way out of this cycle. Libby, it's back to your point earlier, right? And because of that, more than half the country, 55% blaming President Biden for the inflation, and yet 74%, even more, think the Fed, by hiking interest rates, is going to cause a recession. So Libby, it just feels like this is self-perpetuating sort of mud that we're stuck in. Yeah. And according to our America This Week tracker, 80% of Americans still think the worst of inflation is ahead of us. And 44 million American households who rent a home or apartment in the U.S., inflation keeps pushing those costs higher and higher. For example, in our tracker, we found due to rising inflation, one in five Americans have missed or will soon miss a rent or mortgage payment. And that's especially true for Gen Z at three in 10 and almost three in 10 millennials as well. And almost three in 10 Hispanic Americans and one in four Black Americans. So just really thinking about the impacts of of housing and security during this time. But John, also with that, I mean, that's a lot of pressure, right? So anger is rising too about these rising rent prices. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and kind of behind the scenes, Libby and I basically send each other stories uh, all <laughs> the time. It's just tweet slack storms and tweet storms of, of stories you got to read. And I think I sent you this one on, on Sunday, disrupted your day, but I was absolutely fascinated by the New York Times story in the business section. We'll put it in the show notes, but it's called The Rent Revolution is Coming. And I thought, Libby, this was fascinating. This is a, a story that the Times covered about basically 
a rent uprising with a group of citizens in Kansas City that really took on the system to fight skyrocketing rental prices. And if you haven't been to Kansas City, it's great. It's a great town, great place for barbecue. 500,000 you know, people are in the city. And Zillow, you know, its home value index puts the typical KC home at $230,000 or more than 100,000 below the national level. So you'd think kind of on a surface level, you know, what, what are renters really upset about? But you got to get deeper into the numbers because they also found that because of the economy having expanded so dramatically, it's really KC's become driven by logistics and medical industries. What's happened is the KC is actually, Kansas City has seen its rents increase by nearly 8.5% from just a year ago. And that outpaces the nation, according to the rental search site, apartment. List. And so what happened with this group, they got together called Casey Tenants, and they kind of have a really ingenious strategy. They're pairing aggressive protests. Uh, one of the things Libby Day did is they showed up at Mayor Lucas's cameo in a production of Sister Act, and they stood up and they held a banner that, that read Mayor Lucas developing displacement. You know, they've gone on to disrupt city council meetings on new housing ordinances, but then they also kind of have the, the stick and the carrot. They also engage in traditional lobbying, right? So the group has mm -hmm. exploded onto the political scene during the pandemic, and they were actually instrumental in passing tenant-friendly laws like an ordinance that gives renters a lawyer during eviction proceedings. And so, Libby, what I think is interesting about this when you come back to it is that business really needs to be concerned about both of these stories, pinkflation and the personal security issue around rent. Because I think when you have this type of systemic, structural sort of depression that's being brought on by all of this, this concern about recession and inflation, you're now facing a challenge where consumers and workers actually are facing threats to their own personal security. But this also comes at a time when they've got the tools to organize, scale and fight back, right? Yeah, you have, you know, the baristas at Starbucks forming unions, you know, Amazon, the rise of labor unions going up. So mm. it's it's a huge part of it. I mean, I think, John, what's so fascinating is this kind of goes back to the social good CSR efforts, the idea that you have to have that at the heart of your business at this point as well, because with all these societal inequities and inequalities that are surfacing and bubbled really during the pandemic, but continue to foster and fuel during this economic downturn or inflationary times, consumers really look for businesses and they demand that businesses fill these gaps, figure out things, work against the system, or and certainly don't encourage the system to create more inequities in their lives. So thinking about from a business leader point of view, again, how can you be in there to identify those things in a meaningful way for the communities you serve seems to be like a really strong opportunity. I also think about all the numerous articles that you read about businesses not being able to find servers or, or find right. workers because of the housing market and the housing industry. So when companies think about what do they take a stance on, honestly, they have to think about the things that circle employees' well-being and communities' well-being and really pick and choose from those things and not just what relates to my product, right? Which I think was the, the standard five years ago, but it's like, how does my company strengthen society and the society in which we function? Because if we're in a poor society or, you know, if, if it's not functioning well, neither will your company, neither will your brand. I think that's really well said. And I think this is a, a really good counterpoint to the backlash against the ESG right now. I mean, there's been these two laws that have been passed in Florida and in Texas, I believe, that are both sort of challenging corporations sort of 
focus on ESG as a distraction from maximizing shareholder value. And that particularly becomes an issue like in pension funds and, and other areas where they believe that the businesses are not maximizing their profits for these constituencies. But my gosh, if you're not taking care of your employees and you're not like finding a way to deal with your understanding of your consumers in a situation where they are are facing these threats to their personal security. I mean, I don't know what argument better than, you know, how are you going to build up and protect these people in a way that's going to be able to ensure that you have a marketplace there for you in the future? Right. Yeah. You have to foster economy that's better for everyone so that, you know, business is better for everyone, that your business is also part of that economy. I also think that's what's an interesting point just to consider in that argument, because I've heard amongst many clients that that has come up that, you know, that ESG backlash. But I think whenever you're thinking about long-term progressive goals, and I don't mean politically progressive, I just mean future forward progressive, there's always going to be challengers that come in that say, we should remain status quo. And five, 10 years from now, that will seem really ridiculous. You know, when you look back on it, it's like, oh, that was just a blip. So you don't want to get too caught up in the challenger person who wants to keep the status quo as it is, because we all know inevitably change comes at any direction, but we are changing regardless. Absolutely, Libby. Well, hey, that was a lot of fun catching up and chatting about our data as always. Thank you guys for joining us. If you have any poll ideas or questions, why don't you drop us a note at atw at harrispoll.com. And we always appreciate a rating or review. It helps us have other people find the show. And we're going to leave some things in the show notes. We definitely encourage you to, to check out the brand new Harvard Harris Poll. There's a lot of really great data in there on Americans, the economy, Americans and attitudes towards the war in Ukraine, et cetera. And I think you'll find it interesting if you're a, a mild data geek. Libby, have a great weekend. Thank you, everyone.